I've got a shocking statistic for you. A survey shows that 90% of Americans believe our country is experiencing a mental health crisis. Hi, this is Candy O'Terry. Welcome to the story behind her success. In the spotlight, a woman who is doing everything she can to lead the way in training the next generation of mental health professionals. She's a clinical psychologist with a focus on child and adolescent psychology. She's the vice president of workforce initiatives and specialty training at William James College, where she's also an associate professor of clinical psychology. Her name is Jamima St. Louis. And as we sat down to talk, I asked her, do you agree with this statistic? Yes, our country is certainly facing a significant mental health crisis because of the rates of mental illnesses that affect children, adolescents, and adults. And in fact, during the pandemic, what we saw is that there was a significant increase in rates of depression and anxiety, rates of suicide that have significantly impacted individuals across our nation. And what also is of concern is the fact that we do not have enough providers who are trained to address these issues. And there are certainly a lot of what we call disparities, gaps in access and utilization of mental health services among some of the most vulnerable and underserved members of our community. And these include children and adolescents, individuals who belong to LGBTQIA groups, individuals facing substance use disorders, those coping with disabilities. And when we certainly look at some statistical data, for example, we have about 1.6 million children in Massachusetts, and one in five has a mental illness. Yet, when it comes to accessing providers who are trained to deliver services to children and adolescents, only about 20% of kids who have a mental illness can access the services. And also, we know the wait list can be quite long, specifically when you are also looking for mental health providers who are from linguistically and culturally diverse backgrounds, those individuals are almost non-existent. So you can have a child, if you are a parent who speaks a different language, who comes from an immigrant background, it could be months, if not years, that your child can sit on a waiting list while they are suffering in pain, while they're suffering in silence, just because we as a society do not have the providers who have the cultural background, the linguistic skills, the level of cultural awareness and understanding to really meet the demands that we are currently facing as a society. Isn't it true that different cultures either accept or reject mental health issues? That is one of the greatest barriers to care. What you are referring to, we speak a lot about stigma, a stigma that's associated with mental illnesses, because oftentimes we use terms such as crazy, and those terms can actually serve as a significant barrier for parents to allow their children to access mental health care. Unfortunately, stigma has been one of the greatest barriers uh, that oftentimes precludes individuals, even adults, who are coping with mental illness to take the first step to seek those services. And this is why it's so important for us to have a platform where we talk about mental illness so we can destigmatize it, so we can break down those barriers and allow all of us to understand that mental illness is a common 
thing that happens in our society, and it affects individuals across all domains. It doesn't really matter your cultural background. It doesn't really matter your socioeconomic background. It's really an equal opportunity illness that really affects everyone. And I think the more we can raise those levels of awareness, the more we can normalize and talk about mental illness the more informed the public will be and the more likely we hope that folks, including parents, will be in terms of reaching out and asking for help. Well, speaking of asking for help and providing it, you are stewarding a number of programs at William James College. They're aimed at meeting the demand for accessible education and increasing the pool of desperately needed healthcare professionals. Mm-hmm. Three prongs walk us through it. Community Health Workers Training Program. If you can think about a career ladder, it's an entryway into the field. So it's really designed for folks who are at the pre-baccalaureate level who may have an interest in entering the field but do not feel that they have enough mentorship, enough guidance, enough opportunity to test the waters. So the Community Health Workers Training Program does just that. It recruits folks who have not earned their bachelor's degrees yet. We place them in this wonderful program whereby they do a year of field education. They work in a variety of community-based mental health programs across the state. It provides them with opportunity to work with clients, to see what it is like to work as a behavioral health provider. Simultaneously, they are enrolled in a certificate training program. So there's the hands-on field experience that is accompanied by the didactic component, which means that they're learning the skills, they're learning the knowledge so that they can apply that knowledge when they work in the field. And I have to tell you, it's making certainly a significant impact in drawing and retaining folks who are from underserved communities into the field. The students also receive a $5,000 stipend for their living expenses. And so it feels to me like it's such a great way to draw people into the program and then they can figure out whether it's right for them or not and they want to move forward. Absolutely. And the stipend, now this is this is a program that, that's funded by the federal government and we work in partnership with other funders to ensure that finances are not the barrier that precludes individuals who are from underrepresented communities to come into the field. The Behavioral Health Service Corps. Talk about that. The Behavioral Health Service Corps is similar to the Community Health Workers Training Program. However, it is designed specifically for graduates who have earned a bachelor's degree. And what we do through the Behavioral Health Service Corps, we envision this as a gap year for students who have completed their degrees, for example, in psychology and sociology. And what one year where they can earn some additional credits and also have an opportunity to gain some hands-on experience in the field. So these students come, we place them at community-based organizations, again, throughout the state of Massachusetts, where they work with children, adolescents, and parents. They're also working work with adults with severe mental illnesses, and they are supervised. They receive group supervision. They receive mentorship to really help them determine whether or not this is the field for them. This is the career that they really want to pursue. And at the end of the year of their field training, they can decide to enroll in our master's level training program. And what our college has done in partnership with Mass General Brigham is that these students then can receive 
scholarships to complete their master's degree and become licensed practitioners in the field. Accelerate the Future Initiative. It was launched last year in partnership with a private foundation. And this is one of those programs that we are truly, truly honored to make available because it specifically provides scholarships for students who are first-generation college students, Ah. students who are uh, members of ethnic, racial, and sexual minority groups, students who identify as individuals who have a disability, members of the military and veteran personnel as well, because these are the groups that are severely underrepresented in the field. And so through this program, we are able to attract, to train, and hopefully retain these talented individuals who can bring their levels of cultural awareness, their knowledge, their passion, and their commitment to serving underserved communities. Earlier in your career, you directed a program called Pathways. Can you tell us a little bit about this program? It focuses on the impacts of trauma on children, adolescents, and families. That is one of my favorite programs. Um, I can see the smile on your face. (laughs) I am a child and adolescent psychologist by training. And I do remember as far back as I can recall, as a young child growing up in my community and watching the way in which children with disabilities and children with mental illnesses were treated. Although I know that in my community, children are viewed as treasures, they call them. They are loved, they are beloved But when it comes to children who are different because of a disability or because of a mental illness, they are not always loved and treasured. And I think that had to do with misunderstanding, a lack Mm. of awareness, a lack of knowledge, and a lack of resources. So even way back then, I always knew that whatever I was going to do when I grew up, it would involve working with children and advocating on behalf Mm. of children. Fast forward many, many years later when I became a child, an adolescent psychologist, I continued to see some of the same patterns emerging that children and children's mental health was always at the bottom of the priority list. They were the forgotten when it came to access. So this is why I, along with colleagues through William James College, launched the Pathways Program, and we partnered with school districts that are located in urban uh, school settings. We wrote grants, we raised money, so that we could bring mental health services free of charge to children and families in those settings. So for seven years, I ran this program. I think we serve over 500 children and adolescents in the schools that we partnered with. And to this day, another colleague of mine continues to run the Pathways program. But it is an initiative that is very dear to my heart because I realize that when we do not take the time to address the mental health needs of kids when they were young, those issues carry on into adulthood. And if we do not invest in them now, we will invest in other ways because mental illnesses do not just disappear when children become adults. Well, speaking of children and adolescents, it all starts in our childhood. Can you tell us where you're from and what life was like in your house? Paint us a picture. So I'm originally from Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and at the age of 14, migrated to the United States. It was quite a culture shock for me coming here, barely speaking English. But we grew up in a very nurturing 
environment. My mother, my role model. I didn't realize at the time when I was a child that my mom probably was the best psychologist that was around. She just didn't have the official title. I have four sisters that grew up with me and a younger brother. So we have five girls, and then uh, my younger brother uh, came uh, later. He couldn't get a word in edgewise, I'm (laughs) sure, right? He would definitely agree with you on that. (laughs) And I do recall that even though the Haitian culture tends to be very patriarchal, there never were any limits placed on us as girls in terms of what we could achieve. And I think it was certainly early on that drive was instilled in all of us that if we wanted to be president, we could be presidents. If we wanted to be vice presidents, we could be vice presidents. And the focus also on education as a vehicle towards upward mobility. But more importantly, I think what I remember most is that sense of social responsibility and giving back to one's community. My mother made it very clear that when you succeed, first, you shouldn't ever forget where you came from. And second, you should always make a point of bringing those that you've left behind along with you. So I think that lesson certainly stayed with me growing up and coming into the field of psychology, that sense of social obligation to effect change that's going to benefit the community as a whole and to not necessarily focus on your own successes, but to understand how those successes are the successes of the communities of which you are a part. I think those lessons certainly have stayed with me and have certainly informed my path and my journey. When you came to the United States, you said that it was just a complete culture shock. Take me back, the airplane lands, and you walk out, you're laughing. Tell me what it's like. (laughs) I'm laughing because I came in January. No one told us that we needed warm clothes and coats. Did you come to Boston in January? I came directly to Boston in the middle of January. You poor child. (laughs) Ill-prepared, but my mother did bring, you know, coats with her to welcome us at the airport. And we lived in Somerville. And back then, uh, Somerville was a very different place. My sisters and I went to Somerville High School, where we ended up in a classroom that had other students from different parts of the world. So we had students from India, from Vietnam, from Cambodia, because at the time, the school didn't have any bilingual programs. I think they didn't know what to do with us. (laughs) So they put you all together in one room. Absolutely. And we had a lovely teacher who was doing her best to try to communicate with all of us in the different languages that were present in the room. It felt at times like it was the Tower of Babel, and we had to rely a lot on nonverbal language in order to communicate. But that class has stayed with me because, believe it or not, that's where I made some of my closest friends because of this sense of togetherness. We were in this together. We were going to navigate those waters together. We were going to make sense of this system that we none of us uh, really was familiar with, but we were going to do it together. And we did. But I do remember how that experience has been such a humbling experience because it made me realize that Even when you find yourself in situations that are very challenging, where there are barriers, 
that there are still opportunities for you to overcome those barriers if you work together, if you are part of a supportive community, and if you have this intrinsic drive and motivation to succeed. So that really was my, my early Trial experience. Trial by fire. <laughs> Indeed. While freezing to death. <laughs> Tell me about your college experience. Did you know what you wanted to do when you went off to college? I always knew that I wanted to work with kids. So, in fact, when I went to undergrad, I went to UMass, UMass Boston, and that was intentional because I wanted to be at a school where I felt a sense of belongingness and a school that prided itself in supporting individuals who are from culturally diverse backgrounds. So there was no better place for me at that time than UMass Boston. And I, in fact, was a biology major for the first two years because growing up in Haiti, your career path was pretty much set. You could be a doctor, you could be a lawyer, you could be an engineer, nothing else, right? So those were the choices. So I love biology. So I decided, okay, I would major in biology with plans to become a pediatrician because I was so passionate about working with kids. So life had different plans for me. So until my second year as an undergrad, we had to take electives, right? So the only elective that fitted into my schedule at that time was an intro to psychology course. I took Psychology 101, and I remember there was one professor who was giving a lecture on identity development. And as a young woman in a foreign country, trying to make sense of experiences that I was having that really didn't make sense, that lecture resonated with me. I could name what I was going through. Because back home, I was Jemima St. Louis. I was not a black woman. I was part of a community. I was not defined by the color of my skin, mm. by my accent, by the language that I spoke growing up. None of that really mattered. I became a black person when I came into this country. And to understand, well, how do I define my identity? Uh, am I black? Am I Haitian? Am I an immigrant? Am I all of that? And then some, that day, I went to the registrar's office and switched my major and never looked back because of something about that course that spoke to me and made me feel that that is what I want to do. So where did you get your advanced degrees and what was that like? I mean, it's a long journey, right, Jamima? You got to yes. really love what you do. <laughs> it is. Yes, you really have to love what you do. It was a long journey, but so rewarding. So rewarding. I have to tell the truth that there were moments. <laughs> there were moments when I had to question, you know, whether or not I was going to be able to continue to do that to succeed because it was isolating. Uh, so I actually decided to stay at UMass Boston in the clinical psychology program, and that's where I earned my doctoral degree because it just felt right. It was, it was a great place. It felt right at home. But my mentor in that program, Dr. Joan Leem, uh, to this day, the imposter syndrome, the doubting moments that would surface every now and then, questioning whether or not you were good enough, smart enough, talented enough, capable enough. She was that voice that constantly reminded me, yes, you are talented enough, you are smart enough, you are capable enough, and you can do this. So I really feel so fortunate to have had 
people like her in my life and so many other mentors that have shaped who I am today. And this is why I also feel this great sense of obligation to pay it forward. I'm wondering how your family felt when you got your PhD. <laughs> There's a smile. Well, as my parents always reminded me that my name may be on the diploma, but it's theirs. <laughs> so I'm grateful for my parents. I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for my community because where I am today, it is all because of them. Are you a mom yourself? I am. I have been blessed with three beautiful children. How did motherhood change you? Oh, <laughs> Motherhood changed me in a number of ways. I think first and foremost, it made me realize that there were certain things that I thought were priorities that somehow took a backseat because now I was responsible for one and then two and then three. And I have to say that throughout their development, I have been learning lessons that I could not have learned in any other settings. And now uh, my oldest is 16 and heading toward college next year. The lessons that I'm learning from him about social justice, about humility, it's really humbling to see yourself as a parent with the expectation that you are the one that's supposed to have all the knowledge and in fact, we learned so much from our children. And I think that those lessons have actually made me a better teacher, a better mentor, because my children are very honest and they keep me accountable. And I have to be accountable to them because the values that I'm instilling in them, I have to live those values. Next three questions, I ask everyone who sits where you are. Sure. When an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? I see myself as solution-focused, not problem-oriented. And what that means is that I strive to be intentional in everything that I do so that the barriers do not become the reason why I do not achieve the goals that I set for myself. So when there's a barrier, I look at it, I assess it, and I determine, okay, what is the best course of action? And one of the things that I've certainly learned, you really have to rely on your networks of support to move barriers, especially systemic barriers. One person, you can try, you can try, you can try. It can be tiring, extremely exhausting. But when you are surrounded by others with a shared knowledge, with a shared passion, it's incredible how much you can move mountains. So, you know, one of my favorite quotes is, how do you move a mountain? One pebble at a time. And you rally others with you. Another to make what seem impossible, possible. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? And this can be personal or professional. Can you pass that along? Oh, yes. Actually, my step-grandmother used to tell me, Jemima, you have one mouth, but two hands and two feet. So you should do four times as much as you talk. Final question. Sure. And Jamima, I want to thank you so much for being so candid and for sharing so much knowledge today on the show. Right now in this chapter in your life, mm -hmm. what does success mean to you? From a personal standpoint, it's looking in the eyes of my children and seeing 
the young men and the young women that they are becoming. Every time I look at my oldest and he's talking about things that are wrong in this world, things that are wrong at his school, but what he wants to do to redress those wrongs, the importance of social justice and social advocacy, that for me has been the greatest reward and sense of success because it says that you know, my husband and I, we are raising socially conscious people who are going to pay it forward, who are going to make their impacts in this world long after we are gone. Professionally, I think there's so much more to do. Every time I sit across one of my students, I feel so inspired by them. When I see the hunger in their eyes, the light, the passion in them, I feel inspired and I feel that if this is the future of the field of psychology, the future is bright. Jamima, I want to say thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you thank very you much. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It's been such a pleasure. And that's the story behind her success for this week. My thanks to Jamima St. Louis. She's the Vice President for Workforce Initiatives, Center for Workforce Development, and Associate Professor in the Clinical Psychology Department at William James College. Find out more about her programs on the college website, williamjames.edu. I'm always on the lookout for the next woman to profile. So if you know someone that I should feature on the show, will you please tell me? Just go to my website, candyoterry.com. That's candy with a Y, O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. I'll have a new inspiring story for you next week. What's your story? I can't wait to hear it.